Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada, and this is the second part to an episode where Cody Wackerly, Adam Nesvold, and I talked about the definition of the church, what is the church. But then we went on and talked about the function of the church, and I thought that, well, I might as well split these into two different episodes. So hopefully you already listened to the first episode or the first part where we talked about the ontology, the nature, the definition of the church, what is it. But in this one, we are going to be moving into talking about what the church does, what is its function, what is, what is its mission. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to back up just a hair. Greg Allison has this wonderful book on ecclesiology, Sojourners and Strangers, The Doctrine of the Church. And we went through this book as we did. as a, in our the, men's theology study. You mentioned that men's theology study in the in this episode about Harvest Plains, the story of Harvest Plains. Like, if I got anything from the Master Seminary, it's we train, you know, men. Uh, what's the slogan again? Because we train men because lives depend. Yeah, on there it. we go. Yeah. So we did. You know, we started. You started this theology study, and and eventually we went through this this book by Greg Allison. It's a phenomenal book, and we especially like it because he's coming from our our more dispensational perspective on the 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 uh who the church is and stuff like that. So but he has, you know, in history you have all these different marks of the church. What is the church? And you've probably heard before, well the church is the you know, one holy apostolic catholic church. That's the defining marks of the church. And and depending on how you define that you know that that can be a very good definition. I'm not going to get into those, but Greg Allison he gives seven defining marks of the church. The first three are what we call the ontology, and we've been talking about this the whole time. But he does doxological, so oriented towards the glory of God. The church Praise. is for the glory of God. Yep. It's not for man. It, it's for God. Mm-hmm. It is God's. Uh, logocentric. It's centered around the Word of God. Both the incarnate Word, John one. You know, Jesus Christ Himself is. The word made flesh. Uh, so the church is uh, started by him mm-hmm. in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And then it's pneumodynamic, meaning it's brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit, too. Like the Spirit comes at Pentecost. So we would say, and I, we haven't said this yet, but we believe that the church was started at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. It, it had its beginning at Pentecost. Acts 2. Yep, mm-hmm. Acts 2. Because a part of the definition or ontology of the church is the church is one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit didn't come to fill, you know, these the disciples until Pentecost. And when that moment happened, then obviously then from that point on, every time the gospel went out and people were saved, they were filled with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And then to like the apostles, like, oh man, the Gentiles are getting filled with the Spirit. They're a part of the church too. So doxological, logocentric, pneumodynamic, that's ontology, that is what the church is. Now he goes into four others, which is now function. So we'll kind of use these four marks as a, kind of our outline. And for just our, maybe subtle distinction. Yeah. Uh, there's a subtle distinction, right, between being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So just yeah, throw that out there. Yep. Uh, I, I think that the ultimate mark of the New Covenant reality is you're indwelt. You're indwelt, yeah. And then we're commanded— to, to be filled. To be filled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for <laughs> catching that. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the one that's supposed to be technical. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah, because we even see like Old Testament saints being filled, filled. with the Spirit. Yeah. Uh, you know, like during the creation of the tabernacle, for example. For sure. For sure. Yep. And the kings and, and prophets and stuff like that as well. So, yes. Okay. Thank you for catching that. 
Now, these four functional marks. The first one he says is covenantal. So something that the church does is it covenants with each other. One, we have, we're making a covenant with God. That is like when we're saved, we're in this covenant relationship with God. And it's founded on the work of Christ. But we're also covenanting with one each with one another. Yep. So obviously Harvest Plains Church, we you know, when you come into membership at Harvest Plains Church, you sign a membership covenant. So kind of explain that's something the church does. Yeah. Explain your thought behind that. Well, I don't know that they sign a paper anymore. Yeah. Um, but they do enter into covenant yeah. when we have our baptism and membership Sunday. And yeah. we've got um a document that lists responsibilities uh, that the Bible prescribes for every Christian to live out in um, obedience to God yeah. in, in the gathering of his people, right? Right. And so it lists all of the one another's, the pray yeah. one another, serve one another, and of course those other marks that we talked about, gathering yep. uh, for worship and being yep. faithful and obedient to these things. Uh, yes, covenant membership is critical for, for our understanding of the local church. Mm -hmm. And then when I moved down to Kansas City almost a year ago and I joined a new church, transferred my membership from Harvest Plains to Emmaus Church in North Kansas City, again, uh, then I covenanted with that local assembly now. And I did actually sign a piece of paper. Uh, they actually have a sign. So maybe you should think about doing that. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe we yeah. need to start doing that. <laughs> maybe we haven't been a church this whole time. I know, you just... <laughs> Because people haven't signed a document. Signing a well, piece of paper. <laughs> I mean, I, I know like in our interviews, we we show people the agreement before, well, at least we show, them, show it to them. Oh, yeah. Everybody yeah. receives a copy of the covenant, mm -hmm. and they know the covenant that they're going to enter into. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and this kind of, too, is like a part of like, you know, end of Acts 2. What did they do? daily with one another yeah you know, they broke. 242 yeah yeah we should read that <laughs> yep. do you want me to read it yeah go ahead okay uh acts 242 and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and the prayers yeah so like that's something they're doing and that's part of like how we're defining like okay what's on this covenant and what are we covenanting together to do to one another? We're fellowship. We're, we're committed to you know being in fellowship with one another and mm -hmm. caring for each other. We're committed to obviously gathering and and taking of the Lord's supper and doing these types of things. Um, and that's so part of communion, community. You know, being in fellowship is so tied up to that as well. Um, but praying for one another too. I'm sure on Harvest Plains Covenant there is this article that you will pray. There is for one another like that's a part of it as well uh, and, and you will seek to make disciples yeah right? i mean evangelism is one yep. of those marks yep and you will you will submit to the the teaching of the elders and things like that like to the teaching uh so all of that is a part of like what we're covenanting together around to do to one another and and again we are we're the church is the people of the new covenant we're a covenantal people can I just, for a minute, back up on that point? And because I think that's really hard for a lot of people to stomach. Uh, again, just they think of the church in a very, you know, laissez-faire type of way. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, why do I need to enter into a covenant? Is right. that a man-made 
practice, right? right? And uh, is that just the church's way of gaining power over people right. and increasing people's you know loyalty to yeah. them as an institution? Yeah. Sounds called kind of culty a little bit, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, for <laughs> sure, right? I mean, and uh, and it's like, well, again, what we're striving after is faithful worship unto right. God yeah. and. You know, we're striving to faithfully follow everything that he has told Christians to do. Mm. And so we enter into covenant because it is reflected very clearly in the early church that these are the things that if you were a Christian, this was normal, everyday Christianity. So um, the thing is, is we have lost touch with understanding uh, what it is that the church exists to do, right? And it's like, well... Um, can I just show up on Sundays and can I disappear throughout the rest of the week? And can I just, you know, not get involved in relationships because that's very uncomfortable and sacrificial and do I have to serve? And, right. You know, and it's like, well, a normal Christianity, early churches, uh, you were devoted to understanding God's word. You cared about theology. You cared about doctrine, right? Yeah. You, you cared about one another gathering regularly. And it wasn't like they just got together once right. uh, a week, you know, like Adam pointed out. We're never going to be a healthy church if all we do is get together one day out of the whole week. It's like, no. There was a commitment level to all of these people. And, of course, just after Acts 2.42, you end up finding out just how devoted these people were to one another. Because yeah. when hard times came and persecution entered into their lives— Right, and things are starting to be taken from them, and they are suffering financially. What yep. does the church do? Uh, they start to sacrificially Give. sell things yeah. that they're like, "Hey, I can do without this," yeah. and then gave to each other as each had need. Yeah, it's amazing. Yep. So, so I guess covenant membership. When we talk about covenanting in, it's like we're really just uh, we're articulating what the Bible already says um, are the responsibilities yep. of Christians. Yep, absolutely. That brings us to number five, um, the second functional mark, at least, confessional. Confessional. Like we – what we're saying is, you know, you can think of Ephesians 4. Uh, there's one faith. And and even like further on in Ephesians 4, you have – and there is um, – and God gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and shepherds, teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry – and I'm I'm trying to quote this from my mind, but so that they all attain the unity of the faith. And that word faith there, obviously, pistos, it can be translated in different ways. But uh, it, in that context, it means the body of knowledge. It means doctrine. It means theology. It means the truths of scripture. It means the gospel truth itself. And so there is one faith. There's one body of doctrine of knowledge revealed in scripture. Uh, and so, you know, you get into all these discussions uh, on all these doctrinal divides. Oh, Calvinism, Arminianism, egalitarianism, complementarianism, covenant, dispensational, all these different views, Pado-Baptist, Credo-Baptist, blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, though, there is only one true teaching on all of these different disagreements. Mm-hmm. Somebody's right, or they're both wrong, and they both missed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. Like, uh, one of them's right, the other two are wrong. 
And so there really is only one body of doctrine, one faith. And that's what we mean by confessional. We're saying that we are we are adhering to this body of doctrine. Orthodoxy is another way to describe that. We're, we're orthodox versus heterodox. Uh, we're, we're, we are directly oriented towards truth. So confessions mm-hmm. then obviously kind of stem out of that. And we even say statements of faith to our kind of an, an expression of or a type of confession. Uh, we're saying that we are we are adhering to this body of doctrine and truth that the church has believed forever, that that was revealed in in the scriptures, that the apostles taught, you know, apostolic, you know, in the 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 old marks, one holy, you know, apostolic Catholic or whatever. That's what apostolic meant. The apostolic teaching, the apostolic faith, the 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 truth and the doctrine that was obviously the apostles were inspired to write scripture, and it's what they taught the early church. The once for all faith delivered to the saints. Exactly. Yep. So when we say we're confessional, we're saying that we believe what the Bible says, and we need to teach it, we need to believe it, we need to do it, and we're, we we want to unite in a sense with with what the church has believed forever. That's why we, you know, the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, Apostles' Creed, that's why these creeds and confessions have been, you know, created in order to say, yep, I agree with that. And the church, you know, 1,500 years ago agreed with that. And we believe in the same God. We believe in the same doctrine. Obviously, they're coming from the scriptures or they're they're, uh, articulating doctrine that is clearly taught in scripture and then they're putting it to a creed or confession or a statement of faith. And so most churches have a statement of faith. And if you're going to join membership and covenant in membership, you're going to say, yes, I agree with that. And that's important because the church, again, is a gathering. It's an assembly of people that come together and they preach the gospel to each other. And and they're saying, yes, we're, we're together in this. We uh, believe in the same thing. Yep. We believe in the same gospel. We believe in the we same believe, God. Yeah, we believe that there is a triune God, yes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe in Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. Fully God and fully man. We believe the need to repent from sins yep. and to place our faith in him. And that is the only means of salvation. It's Amen. not by works. Just yep. by grace through faith in Christ. Yep. yep. That's being confessional. And we're saying that we're uniting with the church for thousands of, you know, a couple thousand years that has believed that same thing. So, yeah, doctrine's important, obviously. Like, if you say you're a Christian and you say you believe in Jesus, well, you're you're immediately making a doctrinal statement. and say, okay, well, who is Jesus? Mm-hmm. Is he just a man? Mm-hmm. Did he give up his divinity? Uh, what is he? Was he the first? Like, was he the first creation of God the Father, mm-hmm. or is he the eternal God the Son, God Himself, who took on flesh and became a man as well, mm-hmm. not giving up his divinity? Like, that's key. If you don't believe in that, you're not a Christian, right? Right. So that's what we mean by confessional. The church is confessional, and you know that just emphasizes. Uh, all the more why Christians are to be students, right? I mean, the, yeah. the word disciple, it means learner, yeah, right? And to be a Christian is to be a learner. It it, it doesn't mean you're going to be a scholar, right? doesn't mean you're going to be a professor. doesn't mean you're going to be a pastor. But if you're a Christian, 
you are committing yourself to a, a lifestyle of learning from Jesus and learning about his truth. And, you know, you just can't get away from that. You see it, obviously, we just mentioned Acts 2. You see it was the first thing that they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yeah. The very identity of the church. I mean, we, we kind of didn't bring this up. But, I mean, the church is called a pillar and buttress okay. of the truth. Yes. That's a powerful picture. Oh, man. That here we are in a world of lies, and we're just constantly having lies showered on us every yeah. single day. That here we are, we are holding up the truth of God. Yeah. Right? And we're heralding that out to the world. Yep. And it is through it is through the knowledge of God, it's through the knowledge of his word that we are built up in Christ, that we are matured in the faith. And on the one hand, we are already one, mm-hmm. right? We are one. And we talk about becoming one and being one and praying for unity and all that kind of stuff. The fact is, if you're in Christ, guess what? You are one. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, that we are also building towards unity yeah. of the faith. Yeah. <laughs> because we're all trying to become conformed yeah. to, to Jesus Christ. Yeah. But that happens through the truth being studied, yeah. taught, preached. Yeah. Yep. It's, and, when, and, and I'm guessing that, um, I can't remember, but in that book by Allison, yeah. uh, as he talks about being logocentric, yeah. obviously Christ is the word incarnate. Yeah. But I'm guessing he is also emphasizing the spoken word. He is. The written word. Yeah. Yep. The, the revealed word of God. Yeah. The, the scriptures. Exactly. So... That's the thing. We and when we come to and assemble together too, like yes, we make a confession at our conversion, like we are confessing. We're making a confession at our baptism, uh, and then, and then when we gather together, we, we are confessing, like the this gospel. And we believe this. Yeah, and we're singing songs that confess it. We're preaching sermons that confess it. We're, yeah, we're not ashamed of this. Not ashamed of it. This is what we believe. We're, we're like is, we want the whole world to know. It's what we do. Right. And, and that's why this whole idea, again, of like, I'm going to just kind of secretly, privately become a Christian. No, 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 no. You become a Christian. That doesn't make any sense. You're declaring Jesus. Yeah. And when you think about that idea of confessing Jesus, yeah. it was understood that there was going to be this public yes. affirmation yeah. that Jesus is my Lord. Savior and Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And he, obviously he to confess <laughs> Jesus as Lord was to do something incredible, which is to say that Caesar is not. Yeah, Caesar's right? not Lord. Caesar is not Lord. <laughs> right. Yeah, and well, and it always came with a cost. It yeah. because you know, especially for for you know that the the very early church, um, it, those people took a step that said, "Well, I'm a Christian, and that means that." I'm, I'm saying Caesar isn't Lord, but I'm also saying that this Jewish system that I'm stepping out of is wrong, and like that that came with a cost. Yep. Because their friends and their family were still participating in that Jewish system, um, and so yeah, I mean the public dec- declaration always came with a cost, and of course it still comes with a cost today because society is is anti-god and so um of course it's still it still will come come with a cost but it always has and it always will um but the the other thing that i was thinking of is that um the you know the the thing that that comes to mind when i think of like the the 
the confession that, that we've talked about is, uh, you know, the, the things that, that Christians believe, or true Christians believe, it, there's a matter of, of, ex, uh, of like exclusivity to it. There is only one true set of beliefs. You sort of alluded to that. Um, and like, there is only one gospel. And Jesus says that he is the only way yeah. to salvation. Yeah. And uh, Paul in Galatians says that if anyone um, were to preach a different gospel— to let them be accursed. Yeah. Um, and and he says it twice in Galatians 1. And I think that it's important to understand that uh, that you don't get to make up your own set of beliefs about yeah. who Christ is and still call yourself a Christian. Right. Um, or what the Bible says and still call yourself a Christian. You can believe whatever you want about Christ and God, but that doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Um, you you have to come to terms with the fa- with who, who Christ says He is, and who God says that Christ is, and who the Holy Spirit says that Christ is, and you can accept or reject that. Uh, and of course, we would highly advise you to accept that and and kneel before Christ as yeah. as as God. But. Good, very good. Well, the next one is missional. Yes, sir. I mean, this is huge. Yeah, I mean, this gets to the uh, heart of the Great Commission. Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, one of the big things that you're always battling within the church is, you know, people who especially look at the pastor and it's like, he's the one that's doing ministry. Yeah. Well, no, every member, a minister. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's ultimately the... Uh, picture again of the New Testament uh, church. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody's got a different role to play. Everybody's got a different gift. But at the same time, uh, you know, we are all commanded to proclaim the gospel to those around us, friends, mm-hmm. family members, and make disciples. Mm-hmm. It's not a good suggestion, <laughs> as some have put it. Um, mm. You know, it, it is a command. It is command. Yeah. It's an act of obedience to yeah. share the gospel. And uh, you think about what would be lost or what is lost when Christians don't do that, and they just think, well, the pastor's going to take care of it. Right. right. And it's like, no, 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 because we've all got this you know, big web of relationships. And uh, you know, someone I'm connected to is not going to be the same person you're connected to. Right. right? And God uses those unique uh, relationships that you have with people. And he puts you in a person's life providentially mm-hmm. that you would reach them mm-hmm. with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And think about this too. Like, I mean, this is just every local church, I shouldn't say every, but a lot of them do struggle with this whole reality of missions and evangelism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, you, you get your group of people, you're, you're gathering together, you have this rich community and fellowship and then you almost forget, oh, wait a minute, we're supposed to keep reaching out, and we're supposed to keep reaching the nations, and we're gonna, we're supposed to keep building the kingdom through evangelism and discipleship, and the Great Commission is still going on. Like, it still applies to us. Uh, you know, there was, that, there was that period of time, 1700s, um, you know, post-Reformation, where the church, in large measure— 
Protestant church started to drift into hyper-Calvinism, this idea that, you know what, God's sovereign, and— He'll save who he's going to save. He's going to save who he's going to save. If he wants to save the heathen, he can go save the heathen. He doesn't need us. Right. We do need to go over there. Let's just put down our roots and do church here. Yep. And it's like, it's a hypothetical construct that you go, well, yeah, I guess according to your own paradigm that works, but the fact is, what is the means that God has ordained to use in order to save people? And it's like, he has said that he's going to send us to reach people with the gospel. Uh, Does he need us? Uh, Well, again, hypothetically, no, right? But the fact is, he has chosen... To use us. To use us. Yeah. Uh, so he hasn't chosen to use this because we're so great. It's right. just how he has ordained things and set them and up. And it brings him glory. And it brings him glory, yep. Exactly. So that's interesting. So they, And then obviously William Carey came along and he wrote this this big work, The Inquiry, and, and he obviously there's a larger title to that. It's a really long title. But nonetheless, he, he totally just smashed this idea of hyper-Calvinism and that God doesn't need to use us uh, and... and blah, 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 and then that really started the modern missionary movement, and he started the Baptist Missionary Society in England, and, and from there, you just get this explosion of missional, missionary societies and this explosion of missionary work going around the world that's still going today. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the irony of it, though, is the irony of a church that isn't missional, that isn't evangelistic, is that their very inception is due to missionary work, is due to evangelism. They wouldn't exist if somebody didn't go and bring the gospel to a new place. Mm-hmm. And yet then they're going to say, oh, well, we don't need to go out. Well, you wouldn't be here if somebody didn't go. You wouldn't be here if somebody didn't go bring the gospel to a non-believer. Like think of the fact that this gospel message started in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And we're sitting here in North Dakota at the dead center of this giant continent, North America. Literally, we're in the center of this continent. Yeah. We are as far away from an ocean as you can get. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. And yet we're sitting here talking about planting a church, Harvest Plains, and there's been all these churches that have been planted in this area, and we're having a discussion about the gospel. Like, because somebody literally crossed that ocean with Mm -hmm. the gospel. Mm Mm-hmm. That's insane. The church is missional. It's what we are to do. We are to keep going, mm-hmm. keep bringing the gospel to the people that have not heard. That was Paul's whole desire. Like he's writing to the this, the the church in Rome, and he, he he's longing to go to them to you know continue to preach the gospel among them. But he says at the very end of Romans that he has this aspiration to to go to Spain to bring the gospel to the place that has not yet heard. That's his call. That's his mission. Bring the gospel to the place that has not yet heard. And yet, look at all these churches that he's started. And, and established, but he still has his eyes set on the places that don't have a church. And that's that's our call today. So that's why Harvest Plains is a church that will, uh, and it's part of the identity and core DNA of Harvest Plains, going to be a church that's probably going to plant another church. Yeah, Lord willing. Yeah. We hope so. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Uh, I mean, that was always the hope from the very beginning. And you think, like, sometimes it's helpful to break this down into kind of manageable pieces but i mean you think about reaching the whole world and that can be daunting but you go like what happens right if we are part of planting one more church yeah and just kind of the pay it forward idea right like we we plant a church and that church goes and plants a church 
and that church goes and plants a church, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, my my greatest fear is that things just stop with us. Right. <laughs> that would be just so sad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the same could be true even of our own lives. We think like, oh, I'm supposed to go make disciples. Well, you think about like the statistics are staggering when you think about what if every single person just just made two disciples their entire life, and that was it. They were faithful to make two disciples. How different would the world look? It's attainable when you break it down into those kind of you know, terms. Um, so I, I hope that's what we ultimately do one day. We plant another church. Yeah. How are we going to do that, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it, it, I think it starts by, uh, you know, identifying uh, a sense of, okay, you know, we, we're we're out of the the plant stage ourselves. We we have a firm foundation. Um, we're we we have stability. You know, so I, and I think what that looks like is okay. We we have deacons. So you know, because before we didn't have elders, we had you and and the and the outside leadership team. Mm-hmm. Then then we had elders, um, and I think I think now would be like I think the the next step, which we've talked about, is getting deacons in place. Mm-hmm. And then you know, like once once we have a a, a fully biblical, um, a, like uh, leadership in in place. Then, then I think we can say, okay, how, how do we uh, how do we put a plan in place to bring bring somebody in um, with the goal in mind, like bring bring a pastor in with the goal in mind of saying, okay, you're going to be here for a time, and then take a group out to start a church. Mm-hmm. That's that's the I think the ideal um, that. That I that I would like to see, just just like spouting it off on my head of, of how to do that. But yeah, you know, we, we like we we haven't ever talked about it. So yeah, well, but. Sam, I left last uh, podcast going. Man, I really wish we would have talked about just the pattern that we see as far as planting churches in the New Testament. Because yeah. you asked me like, what model did yeah. we use, yeah. right? And I said. You kind of have the parachute model, yeah. which is just kind of one man on his own, just uprooting and going somewhere. And then you have what's become, you know, like the church out of a church model. And we went somewhere in between. And, uh, you know, what is the pattern of the New Testament? And it was like, well, there was the church, which at that time uh, was, uh, come on now, help me all of a sudden I escapes. Paul and Barnabas, they get sent out from Antioch. Antioch. Right. And Antioch's the missional church. Right. They send out, they go on their missionary journey, they're planting churches, they're making disciples. Right. And step one is evangelism, right? In terms of the early church. Step one is evangelism, where you send out missionaries and they preach the gospel. People come to saving faith. Well, all of a sudden, what do you have? You have a church because people have believed in Jesus. And now they're starting to meet regularly to do these things that we see at the beginning of Acts. And from there, then, you can look at Titus. We talked about Titus. Well, once a church has started, you have multiple believers there. You have people meeting together for worship, living out the one another's of Scripture. All of a sudden, there's a need for shepherding. There's a need for oversight. There's a need for structure, um, organization. 
And Paul actually explains what the key pieces of the organization are. You have to first, most importantly, fundamentally, you have to appoint elders, right? And that's top priority. As you raise up, as elders are appointed, then we we learn that, hey, there's a lot of needs within a church, practical needs that can't be met by the elders. Uh, if the elders try to meet all these needs, they end up ultimately getting distracted from their most important work, which is the preaching and teaching of God's Word and prayer, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and that's where we see early in Acts, the proto-deacons, right? Where it's like you had all of these needs and these widows that weren't being cared for. It's like, what are we going to do? Okay, we're going to appoint some faithful men who can care for these widows. Uh, and, you know, the, it eventually becomes more spelled out later on in the epistles where it's like there's two offices, the office of elder, the office of deacon. Elders focus on the, the word ministry, the shepherding ministry, the deacons focus on the practical ministry uh, to help the elders continue to make disciples, mature disciples, multiply disciples, right, send disciples out, and other missionaries. And so, yeah, that seems to be kind of the natural process of maturation, right, where you can't just expect to plant a church overnight. Yeah. It takes years of maturing and just investing into people and being faithful of living out the commands of Scripture. And eventually, the hope is that after you have you have elders, you have deacons, right? You have a healthy, at this point, gospel-centered community that's really focused on um, the Word of God. Then, yeah, it's time to say, who are we going to send out? And maybe that's a group of people. Maybe mm-hmm. that is one person. But it's still through, and I want to emphasize this, yeah. especially in light of all the parachurch ministries, it's still through the local church, right? right? Mm-hmm. This idea that some guy just goes rogue and he's like, you know, I want to plant a church, and he's in your congregation, and he comes to the elders, and... And, you know, the elders are like, no, nah, we, we don't really see that in right. you. And he goes and he plants his own church. And it's like, no, that's not the idea. Right. The idea is that you send out a guy who has actually been raised up as an elder. He is qualified to yeah. be a shepherd. Yeah. And the local church affirms and supports this man yeah. by laying hands, hands on, on him. Yeah, we see that in the New Testament. <laughs> and then he gets sent out. Yes. And I think that, you know, the, obviously there's wisdom in him not being sent out alone. I do think that <laughs> yeah. there's a clear model there. Uh, where you can even go into Matthew 10 and you can see Jesus, right, two sending two. out two by two, right? I think there's just a need uh, for, uh, you know, teamwork in, right. this, in this missional Absolutely. model. And so a couple guys go out, and maybe they even go out with a congregation, right? They might. They might. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. And, and part of that mission, too, Great Commission. Um, so yeah. was it a launch model? Right, like, yeah, yeah. I guess you know, bringing it kind of full circle to our discussion, where it's like, which model did we use? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. we did the launch model, but yeah. would I, you know, argue that ours was like the biblical model? I would say that there were things that we got right. Yeah. Right, like I worked with our local church in Michigan. Those yep. elders, they, they did, sent, they sent you out. They sent me out, right? Um, but it wasn't out of an established church. And then ultimately, God gave me some right-hand guys like Adam and Philip and other people, yeah. you know, to do this work with. It's Sam. <laughs> Almost over Don't forget me. Sam. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, but that's how it starts. Yeah, it is. Yep, absolutely. And a part of that mission, too, yes, it's evangelism. It's going out. It's making a new church. It's church planning. It's preaching the gospel. But then Great Commission, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you and hold on with you always to the end of the age. So there is this aspect of our mission too is not just, we call that evangelism and discipleship or sanctification. 
And that kind of goes back to the confessional aspect too of like and the logocentric aspect. And this all all these work together. But it's like we are we are to be holy as God is holy. We are to be a people who is continually putting off the flesh and putting on Christ, killing our sin, killing our flesh, and and being sanctified and being conformed to the image of Christ through the work of the Spirit working through and in the Word of God in our lives as well. So there is this aspect of our mission too is to continue to teach and preach the Word so that we might be sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ. So, yeah. You know, I preached a sermon at Harvest Plains about the mission of the church yeah. um, when we did our distinctive series, Missional and Lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and my three points there were on the threefold mission of the church— and it was, number one, to preach the gospel. Yep. Number two, to bring glory to God by keeping his commandments. Yep, teaching. And number three, to love God and one another. Yeah. Um, Taking care of the physical needs of the saints. Yeah, the healing aspect of Jesus' threefold ministry. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's important that we, you know, that, that, we, that, that we think about the, the church— exists to worship God, right? We, we make, like, like, I think it was Piper who said, we make disciples to, to make worshipers. Yeah. Um, not to make church members. Right. Um, and, uh, and so we, we, we worship God and we, and we preach the gospel so that we can bring glory to God not not so that we can pad statistics or so that we can just um you know uh advance uh like ministry numbers or you know say oh look at this look at this thing that we did right um no it's so that god can have glory right and i i think it's easy to forget that sometimes yeah and then you know the the other thing too is that uh there's so many commands in the New Testament about loving one another, mm-hmm. like or just just one another commands, mm-hmm. like pray for one another, uh, like um, mourn with one another, mm-hmm. um, you know, rejoice with one another, right. love one another, like so many one another commands. Um, that um, you know that's very important to remember too, as um, as we think about what the church does. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that brings us to our final functional mark which is a little bit of a confusing one it almost it almost sounds a bit like one of the identifying or identity marks but it's this spatio temporal eschatological mark that, <laughs> that Greg Allison gives and it, that's a little bit confusing uh, but basically what he means is that though we have pushed against this idea that the church is a building, uh, there is this reality that the church still does, the local church, When something we do is we do gather in an actual place in time. Mm-hmm. We're, the, we're somewhere. We don't have to be at a specific place, but we have to be at some place. And that's kind of, again, pushing against this whole virtual church thing. We do, we do gather. We are a gathering, but we do gather. It's kind of both. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to quote Greg Allison here. He goes, um, but Jesus does not mean that genuine worshipers engage in genuine worship nowhere. It doesn't have to be 
It does not have to be on the Mount uh, Gerizim, nor does it have to be, or man, I'm really botching this, nor does it have to take place in the Temple of Jerusalem, but worship must take place somewhere. The church is not geographically bound to one place, but it is not geographically agnostic, and that it lives, moves, and has its being in some spatiotemporal reality. It cannot be anywhere, but always is somewhere also. Conversely, the church does not occur in no space. It is what men and women do because of the gospel. So there is this reality like, yeah, we have been meeting and gathering on Sunday mornings in this theater at, you know, Central Cass, Central Cass School. That's where we gather. And it's a real space and a real time. And now it's we've moved to to have our gathering in Mapleton at this building. So the church isn't the building, but we do gather at a real place in real time. And then think of this too, like there is this you know, spatial temporal, temporal, like Harvest Plains Church didn't exist five years ago. Uh, so we are actually temporally located in a, in a, in a time. Uh, there are churches that come into existence and then go out of ex- existence. They, they're, you know, they're, they're, some churches may claim that they've been around since the first century. Uh, I think there might, Martama Church in India might claim that. I don't know exactly. They are claim they are started by Thomas, but I don't know if they claim that they've been a church the whole time. But anyway, there is this reality that a church might be in existence, a, a specific expression, a local church might be in existence for 50 years, and then it might die. We've heard of churches dying uh, or, you know, uniting with another local church, mm-hmm. and that's just a reality. Mm-hmm. So something we do, again, we gather at a specific place at a specific time. Um, eschatological is this whole idea that um, we're moving in a direction. It's this already, not yet. Uh you know, we're already, you know, holy, but not yet holy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I just think that it's so obvious in the Bible that our God is a gathering God, yeah. right? I mean, he took Israel, and then he decided, guys, I'm going to take you to Jerusalem. I'm going to take you to a specific location where you're going to meet to worship me. Now, obviously, we are in a new covenant age, right? So we've talked about how... You know, our understanding of worship has definitely been modified. Yeah. And yet at the same time, there is a continuation of this concept that God loves to gather his people together, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he could have made worshipers, right, and separated them from one another and said, well, just worship me wherever you want, you right. know, wherever you are. But it's like, no, I want you to be with my people yep. together, and I want, you to, I want you to devote yourself to reading my word. Yep hearing my word, praying my word, singing, right? We have a whole psalm book that's been written, uh, hymns given to the church to sing out. And uh, and then obviously when we get to the New Testament, it's like you think about the ordinances and you have to be together to truly celebrate the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. You talk about how we are to be one. Well, we when we come together on a Sunday morning, we are actually one, mm. right? And you think about the picture of uh, one baptism, one one bread. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, literally. It's 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 all only able to happen when we come together as one yeah. people on a Sunday morning. Absolutely. 
Here's a quote from Hans Kuhn, who Greg Allison quotes uh, in his book, and he says he brings together the spatial, temporal, and eschatological elements really well. So Hans Kuhn says, If the church really sees itself as the people of God, it is obvious that it can never be a static and supra-historical phenomenon, which exists undisturbed by earthly space and historical time. The church is always and everywhere a living people gathered together from the peoples of this world and journeying through the mist of time. The church is essentially en route on a journey, a pilgrimage, a church which pitches its tents without looking out constantly for new horizons, which does not continually strike camp, is being untrue to its calling. At the same time, it journeys through history, through a time of complex imperfection, towards the final perfection, the eschatological kingdom of God, led by God himself. It is essentially an interim church, a church in transition, and therefore not a church of fear but of expectation and hope, a church which is directed towards the consummation of the world by God. I think that that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, it gives me chills just thinking about how we get to be part of this amazing uh, work that God has been doing mm. and continues to do. And here we are for just a little blip of time. Yep. Right? But here he is. He's moving us into an area. Yep. Using us in that area. Yep. And then maybe in the future, there's no further representation, right? Yeah. Of the church here in this place. But hey, he has his purposes in mind and we yep. get to be part of them. Yep. Yeah. It's so cool. And that's important to think of the church beyond just the people, the Christians that are alive today on earth right now. Like there will be people who come into the faith and come into the fold. There'll be new churches established literally tomorrow and a year from now if the Lord doesn't return. Like mm-hmm. it's it's moving forward. There is this direction and route, as he said, yep. uh, you know, kind of Israel in the wilderness. Like they had a camp and then they picked, you know, they picked up camp and they moved further towards the promised land. And then they pitch their tents again. And that's kind of what's going on here. We're this church in route. We're not yet what we're going to be. And we're moving towards the direction of the eschatological fulfillment, kingdom, consummation of this amazing reality of being God's people. So, Covered a lot of track here. Yeah, we did. Mm -hmm. I think that's good enough (laughs) (laughs) for the... uh, yeah, what the church is, what the church does. This is lays a really good foundation for us to kind of move into these more nuanced discussions of Israel, the church, the kingdom, the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, um, leadership, elders, deacons, things like that. Uh, just a Sunday worship service, liturgy, regulative principle, those types of things. All that's to come. So thanks again for tuning in to the Preach to Persuade podcast. And you know, keep your eye out for the next episodes that drop. Thanks again for listening. Bye.